Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. From writer-director David Medell comes an intense thriller called The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. Shot in real time, it tells the true story of the final hours of the life of Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., an elderly African-American veteran with a bipolar disorder. I don't want to say too much about this film. More than the police showed up to check on him because his medical alert device was mistakenly activated, and then from there, this incredible film devolves into a standoff between Kenneth and the police with so much misinformation, perceptions about one another that are absolutely incorrect. It is a well-observed film. It's well-written. It's particularly well-acted, and that includes the lead performance by Frankie Faison, who we know from The Wire. And it's a multi-award-winning film, and we're honored to have with us today the writer-director of The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, and that would be David Medell. David, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, it's based on a true story. How did this all unfold? Back in 2017, I, I was doing some research. I was reading, you know, in the in the headlines, and I was watching a lot of news about cases of alleged institutional racism in law enforcement. And that's, you know, that's been a topic of discussion in, in America for a while. It, it only recently has generated the white hot spotlight that it has, uh, you know, from 2020 to now, but it's been a topic, topic of conversation for a while. So I was, I was doing some research and I came across Kenneth Chamberlain Sr.'s story. Uh, and there were a number of reasons that it resonated uh, on a deeper level with me. In the first place, I uh, I, for, for years, I worked with individuals with developmental disabilities and emotional and behavioral disorders. I was a special education teacher, and I am actually on the autism spectrum myself. One of the reasons that this particular story resonated with me was that it was so blatantly clear that these officers, when they approached Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., they were completely and utterly ill-prepared in terms of how to de-escalate a situation that had become escalated, particularly with, with an individual uh, living with a mental health challenge. And it, it just jumped out to me so clearly that had these officers been better trained or had it been social workers or perhaps paramedics responding, you know, what was essentially a supposed medical emergency could have ended with Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. still being alive. Um, so th those were really the reasons that it resonated so strongly with me. And I decided to reach out to uh, the Chamberlain family. And I started a, a conversation with Kenneth Chamberlain Jr. And the script and the whole entire story of the film developed from those conversations. And in a way, watching the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain is kind of a roadmap for reforming the police department. We've heard much of the same critiques of police involved shootings with people who are mentally ill for years and years and years. And this story is really kind of a, a textbook case of that. And one of the reasons why when people have been talking about police reform, one of the things that has been prominent in that discussion is why do we send police officers to these kinds of calls? 
right? This is sending to, I mean, the old, yeah. maybe this is too facile of a way to put it, but when you send a hammer to a situation, everything looks like a nail. And that is right. what this feels like. This is, a, this is in real time, a real life story that lays out why that's not such a good idea. If I'm overstating that, let me know. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's a great way to put it, that, that uh, when, you, when you send a hammer to a situation, everything looks like a nail. And I think that this, this film does ask really important questions about, about what reforms are needed in our criminal justice system. You know, one of the, one of the most important things that we have talked about as a, as a producing team and one of the questions that we've gotten quite commonly relates to who should be the ones who are sent to these, these types of calls. You know, this was technically a medical emergency. You would think that if it was a medical emergency, paramedics might be the first responders, the first ones to make contact. Or if it's somebody who is known to, uh, to live with a mental health condition, as Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. was known to, you know, he, it was known by the department that he had bipolar disorder, perhaps a team of social workers would have been properly trained and would have approached the situation in a way that as we were trained uh, at, you know, working in special education, one of the things that we needed to do was go through very extensive crisis management training. Um, so I've been involved in crisis situations involving uh, individuals with mental health challenges and developmental disabilities. And we needed to learn how to safely de-escalate somebody suffering from a crisis like that in a way that kept them safe, kept us safe, and kept everyone else around the situation safe. If we have to go through that kind of training, you could ask the question, why don't police officers have to go through that kind of training? Or why are police officers the ones who are sent to these types of calls? I know I described the incident in, in our introduction, but if there's anything that I, I feel like we need to sort of revisit exactly how this unfolded, well, let's talk about the very beginning of the film. Sure, sure. So, so essentially what, what happens in the film is pretty much verbatim what happened in real life. Uh, Mr. Chamberlain was sleeping. It was around five o'clock in the morning. He wore a medical pendant because he, he had a heart condition as well. So he wore a medical pendant from a medical alert company. If he had a medical emergency, he could just reach to his chest and press the pendant and it would send first responders over to him. So as he was sleeping, he either rolled over onto it accidentally or accidentally pressed it with his hand while he was taking it off, something like that. We don't know exactly how it was activated, but it was mistakenly or accidentally activated as he was sleeping. And the medical company, uh, the other thing that he had in his home was a call box from the medical company, which you see in the film as well. And they tried to reach him, the monitoring station tried to reach him on that call box. He did not respond. So they sent first responders. And in White Plains, the first responders are police officers. Um, and paramedics came as well. But the police officers were technically the ones who were supposed to make first, first contact. Police officers were dispatched to his home. They knocked on his door. They asked him, you know, we were here responding to a medical emergency. Are you okay? Do you need help? He said, no, I'm fine. You can leave. It was, it was a mistake. I, I don't have an emergency. They said, uh, well, we need to come in and check you out. And he said, no, uh, I'm fine. No, thank you. You're not going to come into my apartment. You can leave. And essentially they said, no, they, they said, we need to stay. We need to, we need to see you. 
And he said, no, I don't have to open my door. I don't have to let you into my apartment. He was essentially asserting his Fourth Amendment rights. And the situation essentially just escalated from there through many, many different, many different facets. We don't know everything that transpired during that essentially 90 minute period, because some of it was recorded, some of it wasn't. You know, what, what we did to develop the script was use the documentary evidence that exists, the audio and video evidence, the police reports and news, news reports and interviews and those kinds of things, essentially fill in the gaps with our imagination uh, where the facts are murky or where there aren't any definitive facts. I think it's safe to say that at some point it became something other than the reason for the call. Correct. It became something more than that. And it, it, it became something more to that to the police, and it became something more than that to Kenneth Chamberlain. It certainly seems to have. Yeah, we, the way that we sort of thought about it in the making of the film was that, yeah, it, at a certain point, each side digs in their heels and it, it turns into a battle of wills. You know, speaking as somebody who has been involved in crisis situations, I've seen that happen many times for individuals or first responders who are properly trained. There's a, a sense of the need to resist that, step outside of yourself and, and avoid that type of power struggle. But that's exactly what this becomes. And it obviously escalated into something that had tragic consequences. I remind our listeners, we're speaking with the writer and director of the film, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. That would be David Medell. I want to talk about the three officers who showed up and the performance that you got from the actors who portrayed them. It used to be you saw a lot of films like this in the sense of it boils down to just the characters, that there's just sort of the interplay, the drama, the escalation through dialogue, through certain circumstances. It almost feels like one of those old Playhouse 90 kind of uh, movies that back from the 50s where they were just staged plays in some way. If That's what I guess I'm getting to. There's a very theatrical feel of the film where it just boils down to the interaction relationship these four people essentially develop over much of the film, the off three officers and, and, and Kenneth Chamberlain. And it's in that yeah. dynamic that you get this really escalating sense of drama and the consequences of such, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was in, uh, when I first heard about the story, I was actually contemplating writing it as a, as a play before developing it into a film, uh, because it, it absolutely could play out on a stage, because it is essentially it's it's these two these two simultaneous stories that are playing out on opposite sides of a door. Each one has its own complications. Each one has its own relationships. And obviously they have a relationship with, with one another. Um, so it, it definitely does. You know, it, it was in, in writing the, the script, it was all about, as I mentioned before, using the documentation that we had. We, what we ultimately decided to do for a number of different reasons, for uh, legal reasons, as well as dramatic purposes, to fictionalize the officers. So we didn't end up using any of the real names, real likenesses. We composited many of them, those kinds of things. What I tried to do was use the, the documentation that exists, use the audio and video evidence, the police reports, the newspaper reports and the interviews to create these characters in a way that was still sort of fictionalizing them. So while we don't use any real names or likenesses, all of the actions that the officers take or the dialogue that they have 
is either inspired by the documentation or lifted directly from the documentation. Right. And I will tease the audience with the last 10 minutes of the film by saying there's an I've, I've never seen that what you did at the very end of the film, the last few minutes of the film in essentially reinforcing what you just said. It, again, I mean, it's in addition to this sort of dynamic that is unfolding in front of us, the, the door becomes kind of a metaphor, right? The do- police pounding that's a, that's on the point. door to get to, to Kenneth Chamberlain, all of the, the baggage that goes along with that. And I think anytime it's hard not to bring this particular aspect of the story up when you talk about police and interactions with African-Americans, that's just something that you can't sidestep. You can't get around it. And it does rear its ugly face in this, the course of this story. You really bring the audience along in this film and along with it, the tension that goes with it. And also let's really, truly Frankie Faison's performance here is is the the touchstone of the film right you want to talk a little bit about what your sort of intentions were with him notes if you will or just what he brought to that performance yeah i mean i can't say enough about about frankie he was just so so incredible and as you can see in the performance he goes so deep and he is able to get himself into some really really emotionally vulnerable places in this role and it, and it was a very intense shoot. It was a very quick shoot. It was very hot. It was very claustrophobic and cramped. It wasn't. It wasn't a luxurious shoot. That's that's an understatement. But you know, Frankie set the tone for everyone on set. He was nothing but one hundred percent gracious and generous with everyone, despite the fact that he was going so so deep into this character. Uh, and and putting himself to some really emotionally vulnerable places. He was nothing but but professional. You know, I, I think Frankie is such an incredible actor and just had an instinct about this character that there wasn't a whole lot of directing that I had to do with him. You know, occasionally, like, instead of asking for this here, try demanding it. You know, the small adjustments like that, maybe with, with or like if there were certain lines that we wanted to get a couple different options. You know, we wanted to get a couple different reads on a certain line so that we could choose in post-production. But really Frankie understood this character, understood something about this character on a very deep level to a point where I didn't have to direct him that much. And I think that's that's a lot of times what happens when you cast really, really great actors or when you cast the right actor in a role. A lot of the director's job is done in terms of working with the actors. I also want to underscore that this character and Frankie Faison's uh, performance has to walk a fairly tight line here in terms of being able to convey that he has mental health issues, that he is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. He's he, there quite often it's brought up that he he brings it up in that he's in the Marine Corps. He was in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. but he so the, you and he gives us that at times manic. I, I want to be careful about the words I choose here, but sort of manic part of his of his personality, but at the same time rational throughout the entire incident. That's a good word. I'm not sure. But it, through the, all of this, he's rational. And, yeah. and even at the height of the most emotional parts of the of the of this story, 
he's still able to gather that part of what he's trying to convey to the police officers. A- absolutely. The 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 tightrope that Frankie had to walk with this character is as I was writing the character, you know, and, and, I, and I was writing the character, as I mentioned, similar to the officers, I was writing this quote unquote fictional version of Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. I was writing the character based on the documentation, based on the audio and video evidence that exists, the recordings, all of those kinds of things, and pulling a lot of lines of dialogue and actions from those those pieces of of documentation. But as I was writing this out, I was thinking to myself, I just don't know if this character is going to require an actor who is capable of walking such a fine line and, and never judging or talking down to this character you know there's a lot of different portrayals different types of portrayals of you know mental illness or people living with mental health issues in tv and film Uh, some are you know more accurate than others some are more honest than others I, i just i cannot say enough about how incredible frankie's performance is in its emotional power and just in his ability like you said to walk that very, very fine tightrope of, you know, essaying all of the different nuances of this character that sometimes change very quickly, you know, that kind of change moment to moment. It it was really, really incredible to watch. And I also want to point out about the film, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, is that for filmmakers listening to, to our voices today, making film and making it on a small budget, this is a great example. I mean, I think there's really only one location in the film. I'm thinking I'm scanning my brain here, but I don't remember anything other than basically the hallway in the apartment in this. And this is an example of how you can get the whole spectrum of a good film at one location. And it's just a matter of imagination and having characters who are believable and all the rest of it. it. This is a great example of that. Thank you. You know, it was certainly convenient budgetarily that we were able to do that, uh, but it just fit the story as well, because I always envisioned the story playing out in real time. It never made sense to me to like cut away to the police station or cut because, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do was put the audience in the shoes of Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. Cutting away, it would have given the audience a break or a breather when Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. didn't have a break or a breather. And our producing partner on the film, Enrico Natale, and I, uh, Enrico also edited the film and he played Officer Rossi. Um, so you can see him on screen as well. But we we worked very, very hard in producing the film and editing the film to put the audience in Kenneth Chamberlain Sr.'s shoes uh, to make sure that the audience didn't have a break, just like he didn't have a break. As we wind down here and talk about the assembly of people that you got involved in the film, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Morgan Freeman is involved. Tell us a little bit about how he came aboard and obviously one, one of the great great actors and one of the great personalities in, in, in American cinema. So Absolutely. Morgan and his production company, uh, Revelations Entertainment, and his producing partners, uh, Laurie McCreary and Gary Lucchese, they ended up seeing the film uh, after we played a couple festivals in 2020. 
and it it resonated really really powerfully with them so they uh decided to to jump on board and 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 have been enormously enormously helpful in in amplifying the the voice of the film and uh really really getting it out there and i know that frankie and morgan and kenneth chamberlain jr who is uh the son of kenneth chamberlain senior have done a number of of interviews and and their voices are just incredibly incredibly powerful when it comes to the issues that are that are addressed in the film all three of them sort of come from different generations that are slightly removed so they all have slightly different perspectives 15 year age difference between morgan and frankie and kenneth some, something like that so they all come to these issues of of implicit bias racism in law enforcement and racism in general from their own unique perspective with their own unique background so it's been really incredible you know hearing them speak on behalf of the film and and all those kinds of things but but uh morgan and his team have really really been incredible in terms of their their passion for the story their passion for amplifying the film and amplifying this story and really working towards the goal of making Kenneth Chamberlain Sr.'s name uh, known nationally. And it's interesting because the people that approached me about doing an interview for this film felt like they had that passion. They were this sort of the presentation yeah. of it to me was, this is a film you've got to see. I mean, this is really important. And it feels like this is the kind of film that is going to elicit those kind of reactions for people as they're walking out of the theater, as they're sitting in their living room with others, and there they're are going to be compelled to want to talk about this film. That's the goal. That's the ultimate goal. And, and yeah. we've been we've we've had a chance to do a number of Q&A's after screenings at this point. And the discussions that take place after the screenings are incredibly substantive and sometimes very emotional, but really positive. And, and we've had the chance to actually screen the film and do q a's with some members of law enforcement present and those discussions are you know really meaningful on a whole nother level what what our ultimate goal is is to hopefully move the conversation forward about changes that are needed in the criminal justice system you know if we're only preaching to the choir that's not going to happen and the conversations that we've had with members of the law enforcement community have been meaningful and civil and and it's been fantastic um so i i really hope that more and more conversations take place just with general audience members uh with members of the law enforcement community because it, it really requires people from many different areas and sides to come together to 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 really figure out what some of these solutions can be and you're absolutely right again as we were discussing earlier this is a blueprint for why and how we can be in the business of de-escalating these situations where the police are appropriate and where they're not appropriate and this is the way it works you know you can talk about these things until you're blue in the face but it isn't until we see a story about human beings that we can relate to that these things seem to begin to to make the inroads that we I, that I think we all know needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that a, a story or a narrative can affect people in a in a very different way than right. looking at a set of data. Now, I mean, obviously, data is extremely extremely important. We can't we can't make any decisions without it. Stories like this can affect people in a in a different level, and sometimes sometimes it takes something like this to really light a fire inside of somebody to 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 do more research or to have a discussion about it or to, to, to you know, pay closer attention to it. Our brain operates in such a way that 
we are a story driven species. We, I mean, the Bible and yeah. literature yeah. and movies, these are all stories and they, and in some way have to make, they have to resonate in some way for them to be effective. And right. this is what we can relate to. Data is certainly important, but most people look at data, you know, it's just numbers on a piece of paper sometimes until, right. until it's, until it's real. Right. So it's made personal yeah. or, or on an, it hits you on an emotional level. Yeah. It's the emotions. We are for better and worse, uh, emotional creatures, but, uh, well, David, thank you. Thank you. First of all, for the film, the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain and for your work as a writer and director and all of the different hats that you wore and all of the managing this in, in, from a start to finish. And I really appreciate your time here, David. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.